The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. With Russia's war on Ukraine approaching the one-year anniversary mark, The Washington Post is reporting that the Biden administration has warned Ukraine that the war is entering a pivotal phase and that it wants to see military advances. Joining me now is one of the reporters on that story, Yasmin Abu Talib, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Yasmin, welcome back to First Look. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So, Yasmin, this feels a little bit like deja vu all over again in that the administration was warning President Zelensky that an invasion was was imminent and he didn't believe it. This is almost exactly a year ago. Um, nearly a new nearly a year a new warning. How critical are the next few weeks in the eyes of the Biden White House? I think we're looking at a span of of a few months, but basically what you have is the Russians planning to launch an offensive. The Ukrainians want to launch a counteroffensive. They are still defending cities like Bakhmut, which the U.S. views as, you know, they know is symbolically important to the Ukrainians and President Zelensky, but don't think are as strategically important. And I think, you know, they know that the, the U.S. knows they have real political realities to contend with. So, you know, they say that they're going to support Ukraine as long as it takes, but they can't make any promises or guarantees for the amount of aid they might get or the amount of weapons they might get. You know, they will keep asking for what they think Ukraine needs. But obviously, the politics have changed a lot in the last couple of months. Republicans took control of the House in January. So that's going to make getting congressional packages harder. You know, the White House will say, look, we've we've uh, exceeded expectations every time. Congress has given us more than we've asked for. So who's to say we can't do it again? But the reality is, you know, there are no guarantees for the amount of aid they're going to get. And what they're telling the Ukrainians is, the spring offensive and counteroffensives are going to be critical. They're getting an influx of weapons and tanks and aids from the U.S. and its Western allies. So they really need to try to make the most of this opportunity when we know for sure what's flowing in to try to make some advances. And, you know, uh, Vice President Harris is in Munich at the Munich Security Conference. She was there a year ago uh, and in meetings on the sidelines. Remember, that's what President Zelensky left Ukraine, I think for the first time, uh, well, on the eve of what everyone was saying was a war uh, that was about to happen and he didn't quite believe it. And on the sidelines was President Harris had a meeting with him, as she told me during an interview late last year to um, set forth the realities. Um, that U.S. intelligence was was telling them and relaying those messages to President Zelensky. Any idea um, what Vice President Harris is going to say at the Munich Security Conference on Saturday, where she's expected to speak again? 
I think, you know, uh, Vice President Harris is, is in Munich now. Uh, President Biden is going to Poland next week. I think you can expect both of them to deliver addresses that try to affirm the U.S. and Western alliance commitment to Ukraine. Uh, we know the focus of the White House is to send a signal to Russian President Vladimir Putin that there are no fractures in the Western alliance, that even though this has been going on a year, that the Western countries are not, you know, getting tired or weary of supporting Ukraine. Uh, they say that Putin tried to... Uh, demoralize everyone with a really, really difficult and brutal uh, winter bombardment, you know, attacking civilian infrastructure, cutting off electrical get grids, cutting off heat, electricity, water um, in a lot of these eastern Ukrainian cities. So I think for Vice President Harris, you can expect her to hear um, an affirmation of the U.S.'s commitment to Ukraine, to defending democracy around the world, sort of making this part of a broader struggle. Because one of the other things that this administration has struggled with is while you have, you know, the U.S. and Canada and European allies generally aligned on what to do for Ukraine, with, of course, some natural disagreements emerging throughout the year, they've had a much harder time getting countries in the global south, you know, countries in Latin America, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, uh, supporting everything they're doing on the war because it has caused global economic turmoil. So they really try to paint this war as, as sort of a broader uh, battle over democracy versus autocracy, which we know is, a, is a, one of the major ways Biden sees his presidency, uh, to try to rally people to the cause and say, it's not just about these countries that might be really far away from you. There's a reason we should all be invested. And so I think I think you'll hear variations of that message from both of them over the next few days. And uh, one more question on this before we turn to balloons. Um, as you just you you mentioned, the president's headed to Poland on Monday. Any murmurs or, or rumblings within the White House of the president actually slipping into Ukraine as other uh, foreign leaders have done? They have, you know, I'm sure you can imagine they have been very tight lipped about whether that would be part of the plan. So we don't have any sort of official confirmation from the White House on that. There have been reports from all over, from the U.S., from Europe, that uh, there might Zelensky might try to meet with with President Biden. Uh, we don't know if that's going to happen. And of course, given the security concerns, uh, that probably would not be released until the very last minute. Um, and there is some speculation. I just want to make clear we don't have any sort of confirmation of this, but there is speculation that President Biden might try to go to the border between Poland and Ukraine and sort of step foot in Ukraine as a symbol. Uh, but whether that will actually happen is not clear. And of course, because of security security concerns, we probably wouldn't find out about that until it's happening. Right. Or maybe even after it's happened. Um, or Yasmin, after. Right. Let's, let's switch gears and talk about balloons and stuff. President Biden had this to say about the objects shot out of the sky in the last two weeks. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were. But nothing, nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other, any other country. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation, or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. I'm sure a lot of people were relieved to hear the president, uh, one, talk about this situation and two, relay the information that the, aside from the Chinese spy balloon, that the other thing shot out of the sky were, you know, something else. Why did it take so long for the president to make these remarks? 
That's a great question. I think there was some time where U.S. officials were really trying to wrap their arms around what was happening. Um, you know, you obviously had this the emergence of the Chinese spy balloon um, in late January. So it's, I guess it's been about two weeks, two and a half weeks since this first all kind of uh, burst into not to uh, be funny, but burst into public view. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, after that, uh, the administration said that they adjusted their military radars because they realized they were missing some of these flying, uh, slow-moving objects. And then, of course, we had these three days where every single day they said they were shooting something else out of the sky. Um, and it, it honestly got a little bit silly at times, you know, people talking about whether there were UFOs or aliens or what was happening. Um, and so I think, you know, there was a lot of confusion, um, some anxiety around what was happening, why the U.S. was suddenly detecting all of these. Uh, the administration had given Congress some classified briefings, and a lot of lawmakers, particularly Republican lawmakers, were calling for the president to address the nation on this. Uh, they had been very critical of how he had handled the spy balloon. And so I think the White House finally felt compelled to address this and to make very clear what they did and did not know about this and to also put at ease some of the anxieties from the last couple of weeks. Yeah, because for a while there, it's starting to feel like either Independence Day or War of the Worlds. You pick your your alien invasion movie. Um, Yasmin, we've got about 90 seconds left. One more question on this. Secretary of State Antony Blinken canceled the planned trip to China when the spy balloon um, was discovered two weeks ago. Given the president's remarks, is there talk of rescheduling that trip, do you know? Well, the president said in his remarks that he uh, was planning to speak with Chinese President Xi Jinping again. Um, the White House was and, and the uh, State Department were very careful at the time to say they were postponing the trip, not canceling it. We have not gotten any indication of timing. Um, I, it does seem like, you know, this the, the administration has said this is not worse in relations with China, uh, but it has caught, you know, just brought up more underlying tensions. Um, it's, it's escalated a little bit. Um, and so it's not yet clear when that trip is going to be rescheduled. We know they want to. Uh, the president said he thinks Xi Jinping wants to have an open line of communication and does not want this to damage relations. So I think we'll have to wait and see. I mean, it's it's hard because the timing has to be ideal for both sides and neither wants to look weak. Right. And thank you for that correction. The trip was not canceled. It was postponed, uh, which means soon to be rescheduled. Yasmin Abu Talib, White House reporter for The Washington Post, as always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks so much, Jonathan. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate editor and columnist Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Hugh Hewitt. Ruth, Hugh, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Hi, good morning. Um, so, um, Hugh, I'm going to start with you first. Your reaction to President Biden's remarks on the unidentified objects that have been shot out of the sky in the last two weeks. I think they ought to send Admiral Kirby out there instead and have him talk as he does always very effectively and with a lot of nuance. I didn't think the president's remarks were very well uh, uh, phrased to assure people, especially the idea that they are informing Congress on a contemporaneous basis of what's going on and what they're discovering. They're not. I've talked to a number of members of Congress this week and they're just not, they don't know anything. And it's because I don't think the country knows. So I just would send Admiral Kirby out there and not the president to discuss this. Ruth, I mean, what if Admiral Kirby has the same information that the president has? <laughs> Does that make it uh, more credible given, you know, Hughes uh, benchmark? 
Well, I think the president, uh, for some people, can't win. Either he's ducking, uh, informing the country of the threat, the supposed terrible threat, if he doesn't come out, or he's uh, not being Admiral Kirby if he does come out. Uh, Yasmin used the word burst. I'm going to go with the balloon metaphor, and I'm going to say this. I find this the most kind of overinflated story of the year. You know, the Chinese did something uh intentionally or unintentionally, you know, how intentionally it was still a subject of debate that was provocative, that we needed to respond to. We responded to it in an appropriate way. You can have an argument about whether that took too long. Um, but, and the recent stuff, the major question for me really is whether we have over-responded uh, in terms of shooting down these other identified objects, not under-responded. So I am, Kind of, I'm a little bit done with the balloon story. Oh, great. Me too. Because I want to no, talk I, about. I'm talking about it, but I'm a little done with. Um, I'd like to move on. Not, not, not this morning, just in the national <laughs> conversation. I'm not hijacking your show, Jonathan. No, no, not no. no. I was going to say, we're going to move on to. You know, I'm taking a cue from you. Moving on <laughs> to something else. And that is, and, and I'm going to stick with you, Ruth. Um, the, the Republican presidential roster added a, a second candidate. Former UN ambassador and South Carolina governor Nikki Haley announced her bid for the Republican nomination for president on Wednesday. Does she stand a chance? A chance, perhaps not the best chance uh, against Trump for several reasons. Uh, what's her theory of the case? She's a, you know a very attractive candidate in the sense that she brings a lot of both experience and narrative to the table. She is younger and she was really not shy about saying that. She has this compelling story about being the daughter of immigrants and growing up in South Carolina as the only Indian family in town. Uh, she, So she's making a kind of um, personal and um, generational argument against Trump, but she's not making a policy argument against Trump. And she's not telling us what she would do differently from him. She has to deal with the reality that she didn't just flip-flop, she flip-flop flipped in terms of not running against Trump. She wouldn't, then she, now she is, and she's got a little bit of a hard time explaining that. And I think that her biggest challenge really um, isn't Trump, um, though he is a challenge, it's Ron DeSantis. And What's her argument about why she should be more attractive to Republican primary voters than he is? All right, Hugh, I'm dying to hear what you have to say. One, because you interviewed um, Donald Trump uh, and on your show, and you talked about, or he talked about uh, Governor Haley. Um, one, I'm wondering how disappointed Donald Trump is about the fact that um, Governor Haley is in the race, and as Ruth said, has flip-flop flipped when it comes to her position vis-a-vis -vis him. And then I'm wondering your view of how he'll, how Nikki Haley will be able to walk this fine line of embracing Trump while keeping him at arm's length at the same time. Is that even possible? Uh, second question first, yes it is. Uh, I think that, uh, I've said this a thousand times, I'm in Republican Switzerland, right? So I, I'm not going to say this one is better than that one. I'm going to interview them all. Ambassador and former Governor Haley has been on the on the radio show with me, you know, dozens of times, as has the former president, as has Ron DeSantis, and they all. 
And here's my view of the race. We won't know nothing until the debates begin because the country won't tune into the Republican primary until July or August when the debates begin. And then they will assess and quickly change their point of view depending upon what they hear and the questions that are asked. So Ambassador Haley is a superb communicator. I like what Ruth said, she's got experience in narrative and that's true, but so do uh, everybody else. And there are some only Trump people and there are some never Trump people. And I, I just think we have to wait. And I just remember thinking Scott Walker had a huge lead in 2016 going into the, into the first debate and it didn't last two weeks. So let's wait and see what the issue set is and how the candidates do. Second, first question you asked, what does Donald Trump think? I don't know, two weeks ago, he wasn't happy when he talked to me. I'm sure he's still not happy and he's not gonna be happy every time another Republican gets in. He would rather be, he'd rather be a coronation than a competition. Mm -hmm. Ruth, one more question on this. I want your view, let's say Nikki Haley survives and, and becomes the Republican nominee for president. Will she be on the general election stage? Because listening to her announcement speech, you would think that she was already in the general election. Um, can she thread that needle, walk that fine line of being the Republican nominee, keeping Trump at arm's length while at the same time embracing Trump? I, I think it's going to be very difficult, actually, for any general election nominee to um, balance that Trump problem, which is that Trump, uh, if and when, and let's just, I will cross my fingers, um, I am not Switzerland when it comes to Donald Trump, uh, if and when he loses the nomination, it's very hard to imagine, um, though pigs will can fly, that he's going to go gracefully. And so... There, that when he, if he does not go gracefully, there will be a number of uh, Republicans, the always Trumpers, who will stick with him. And it's going to be difficult to walk the line between uh, attracting or keeping enough of that um, MAGA Trumpy crowd and attracting a general election electorate. That's true for Nikki Haley. You can see it in some of the messaging she's doing now, which has been, you know, very um, conservative and, and base rallying. Um, it's it, it's always hard to pivot from the primary to the general election. It's particularly hard to pivot when you've got Trump hovering in the background. Hugh, one more question on this. Since you have, whether they've announced or not, all the people who are being speculated as people who are going to jump into the race, you've interviewed them all, haven't you? Yes. Repeatedly. So, oh, even better, because what I'm about to ask you is this. Of all the people who are said to be looking into or about to jump into the race with the Republican nomination for president, which one is the weakest and should reconsider? Uh, again, I, I don't want to disqualify myself from talking to anyone. The strongest candidate right now is Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, if we believe the polls. Everybody else is below 2%. Everybody else. And so I don't know... I guess Mike Pence is at like 5%. I don't know which of those two percenters are the weakest because we won't know anything until the, the debate begins. But I think it's, it's, a, it's actually, if anyone else in the media is watching it, it's bad to ask Republicans who's up and who's down, who's weak and who's strong, because they don't have any way of knowing. It's like asking us to comment on the balloon. So I'm going back to the balloon. None of us have any idea what's in that balloon or what went down. Do and nobody do knows that. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, I just I just think it's horse racing this race 
with the former president in the background, maybe going bull moose. And for the benefit of the Steelers fans, that means Teddy Roosevelt, 1912, runs as a third party candidate and destroys the Republican chances. Woodrow Wilson wins. That could happen. So I, I don't know who's weak. I will say this. If there is a candidate who wants to run, who does not have a path or a set of credentials, I hope the RNC decides not to allow them on the stage. And let's be clear, when, I'm, when I was asking you who's the weakest, I'm not talking in terms of horse race. Because you've interviewed these folks, sometimes multiple times, you have an insight into their skill set, their abilities, whether they can handle a punch to the face, as Mike Tyson says, whether they've got a clear statement of the case. So, Hugh, all I'm saying is you're going to force me okay. to listen to your I videos. I, I, I misunderstood you. Uh, as Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the face. And so yeah. everybody's got a plan how they get to the nomination. Thus far, the only people I've talked to are all serious people with credible pedigrees, whether it's Tim Scott or Governor Abbott or Governor Sununu. There are lots of people besides DeSantis, Trump and Nikki Haley. Uh, you know, uh, former Secretary of State Pompeo's got a good case. I haven't interviewed any weak candidates yet. They're all superb communicators because they all have great experience. Wait, I, I don't want another, and, and God love Michelle Bachman, no way she should have been on the stage in 2012. I mean, it wasn't serious. And I don't want unserious people on the stage. Given what you just said, I wish Michelle Bachman, we were in to go to the way back and I could ask you and to see if you would say, I'm not disqualifying anyone knowing what we know about Michelle Bachman. Let's move on to the economy in the five minutes that we have left. Um, Ruth, good inflation news this week with inflation easing for the seventh straight month, uh, prices rising at 6.4% January over January. Um, retail sales jumped in January by 3%, much higher than expected. Um, have we turned the corner on the economy and on inflation, I mean? Well, I think we're not turning the corner as much as we are threading a very narrow needle, um, which is this. You want inflation to moderate, and that means that you don't want the economy to grow, and we've talked about this so many times before, you don't want the economy to grow too quickly, but you don't want to see joblessness soar. You don't want to see spending crash. And so we're set with these mixed messages where the, the what looks to the, a normal human being, in, in, uh, unemployment down, job creation, um, retail sales up, that looks like good economic news. The economy looks like it you know, may not be hurtling into a recession. Turns out to be bad news for the stock market. It's bad news for the stock market because uh, the stock market is anticipating that that will mean that the Fed will uh, continue to raise rates longer than it was expecting. And so it's all a little crazy making. I think the reality is, and uh, I'm no economist, but I'm going to play one on Washington Post Live, that things are going actually really remarkably well that we used to talk about how difficult it was going to be to execute a soft landing but the, the landing is looking um less hard than it uh than we once feared that it was going to be hugh you shared that rather rosy assessment no, no i didn't no. think so i'm so surprised you know, you're too young jonathan but Stagflation is where you have both growth and inflation. It's Jimmy Carter years. 
And I see stagflation ahead. And if President Biden is running on 6.4% inflation is great, uh, he's going to get crushed because it's not great for anyone on a fixed income. It's particularly not great if you like eggs. Grocery store inflation went up 10% on an annualized basis in January. It's way too high. And the retail spending number is great for Amazon and it's terrific for Costco. It's not good for calming inflation down, which is why the markets have a mixed reaction. So it, the soft landing is proverbial. I mean, it's really proverbial. It's never happened. We either had, we had a recession last year, according to the standard definition of two negative quarters of growth. I think we're going to have another one this year. Who knows where we'll be in November of 2024? All right, we got to squeeze in one more thing economy related. The Congressional Budget Office um, issued a warning this week that the United States will default sometime between July and September if the uh, debt ceiling isn't raised. Will this light a fire under all interested parties to reach a deal sooner rather than later, Ruth? Well, and there's another um, report that I thought you were going to refer to from the Congressional Budget Office this week that had to do with the size of the deficit and the debt going forward, which was just astonishing. And those two are related because um, that too should light a fire. It should light a fire that we can't... Um, risk, and you've written about this and talked about this a lot, Jonathan, we cannot risk um, playing with the full faith and credit of the United States and um, having a default on the debt. But we cannot continue to have the conversation that we've been having. And it's honestly, it's been getting worse instead of better, uh, where we pretend that the fiscal situation is uh, not as bad as it is and is so far into the future that we can keep it going. And when I say worse instead of better, what I mean is where the conversation has been right now is that President Biden has taken any cuts or changes to uh, to Medicare and Social Security off the table. He seems to be dragging Republicans along with him. President Trump criticized Nikki Haley for talking about entitlement reform after she announced that she was running against him. So um, this is crazy because um, we have to uh, behave rationally, and that is not where Washington what Washington is doing very well these days. And Hugh, we've got about 30 seconds left, but also taken off the table on the Republican side are cuts to defense. Well, that's good, but Ruth is right. The CBO report that ought to have people's eyes rolling back in their head is 19 trillion in new debt over the next 10 years. That'll make a national debt of $50 trillion. If interest rates are at 5%, that's two and a half trillion dollars a year in interest payments on the debt. It's a staggering report. It got far too little attention. I'm glad Ruth brought it up. And Republicans and Democrats, they may have to do a virgin birth thing, but they've got to go behind closed doors and figure something out because $50 trillion in debt cannot be carried. Um, I'm just going to leave it right there. Hugh Hewitt, Ruth Marcus, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank Thanks, you, Jonathan. Thank you, Ruth. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.